Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And tonight we are talking about Pictures of Hollis Woods, which is a 2003 honor by Patricia Riley Giff. We have a summary from the book list review that was put out on October 15, 2002, written by Grace Ann A. DeCandido, who is an author in her own right. She was named for the place where she was found as an abandoned baby. 12-year-old Hollis Woods has been through many foster homes, and she runs away every time. In her latest placement with an artist named Josie, the tightly wound Hollis begins to relax ever so slightly. In the warmth of Josie's creativity, Hollis's own drawings, always her voice, and the way she sees best proliferate. In flashback and memory, we see Hollis's last foster family, what they meant to her, and why she ran. But Josie is slowly slipping into dementia, and Hollis knows that she'll be taken away from her if Josie is found out. How she saved Josie and herself is the kernel of this moving story about families, longing, and belonging. Veteran author Giff has a sure hand with language, and the narrative is taunt and absorbing. Marcy, did you like this book? I did. It's hard to it's hard to know what to say about this book because I really did like it. I thought it was enjoyable and readable, but also it was really sad. So it's weird to say that you enjoy a sad book, but I really did. I'm with you. I'd never read this book before. The cover look makes it look very serious, and it is serious, but it's beautiful. I was really, really blown away by it. Um, well, the cover also makes it look – so the title is Pictures of Hollis Woods, and the cover is photographic. So it makes you think it's going to be about a series of photographs of a person, but it's not the case. It's, it's about the drawings that she makes of her life, which is interesting. But I, every chapter or every few chapters is buffeted by um, – a like, little mini chapter called like first picture, second picture, third picture, fourth picture. And it's really interesting because you get the flashback of the last family, mostly in those picture, little picture, mini chapters. And yeah. you also see her, you see her starting to get comfortable in her last foster family's um, home and with them at the same time as you're seeing her get comfortable with Josie. And it really builds the tension, right? Because you don't know what's going to happen with her current timeline, right? But that she's building the tension to a culminating event in, in whatever happened previously that you don't, you don't know the, the explanation of that. So it's really, um, kind of tense increasingly. It's almost written like a thriller because it is so intense and the way it builds, I thought that someone was going to die. Well, I thought someone had died. Yeah. So or she, ha- yeah. yeah, yeah. So in in the going to of her flashbacks, yes, it was very. So I thought Stephen died. Oh yeah. I mean, it was just it seemed so obvious, but then that's not the case at all. So this story is about a girl named Hollis Woods who was abandoned as a baby and has been through this series of foster homes, and. In the the now of the story, the present tense of the story, she's with an older lady named Josie who she's just met. Um, but throughout the book, she is having these flashbacks in the form of just descriptions of her own art, her drawings of a previous family that she lived with who she who she really came to love and didn't want to leave. And so the older lady that she's staying with is much older and is clearly starting to have memory issues and cognitive issues and she's so sweet and she doesn't want to leave her but 
the social service people are clearly going to remove her from the situation if they figure it out. So she has to figure out what to do about that situation. And you're still trying to figure out what happened with her former situation. And so there's a big snowstorm coming and Hollis decides that she's going to take Josie to the family's cabin. Her last foster family had a cab, a summer cabin in the woods. And so she, um, she takes Josie there and they get snowed in on Christmas. And as things are getting more and more tense in that situation, it gets more and more tense in the flashbacks because you don't know why she didn't stay with the last family. It's clear that she wanted to. And there was a brother named Stephen who was really intent on driving this particular truck. And there's a couple mentions made of like an accident and a scar. And you're like, oh my God, Stephen died. That's why like they didn't want to keep her at all. And it gets more and more tense and more and more serious. And the story is going on and on. And it's just, you're like, oh my God, what's going to happen? What happened? So we think, you know, because of the tension that's been built up, and this is written like a thriller, even though it's not really a thriller, because you have, when when they're in the woods and it's been snowing, the, um, Hollis starts to think that someone is look, looking at her from the woods. And yeah, and we also have the tense the tenseness built up with the the picture little picture mini chapters that are that are interspersed and we think that Stephen is dead or someone died was killed by Stephen and Hollis even though she drops in little moments of like wondering how they're doing or whatever so you it's interesting because as a foster kid you know that people have emotional problems sometimes and so you're like oh is she just imagining that he's still alive and wondering how he's doing and he's not okay like it's a, it's a little bit layered in that way. Hmm. Like there are a couple of places where she's she's like, oh, I wonder what they're doing now or whatever. Or she'll only mention one person in the family and not all three. And so you're wondering yeah, if she's wishful thinking about it or really thinking about it. It's a little hard to explain because we've been talking about this in terms of like, it sounds like a thriller, right? And it's so tense, but all of that is sort of plot related. And as you're reading it, it doesn't feel like a thriller, right? It has all the plot elements of a thriller, but it feels more emotional. Hollis was so happy about the family and the fact that they were clearly going to keep her that she decided to go hiking up to the top of this mountain behind the house by herself, uh, which was foolish. And she wanted to like yell from the top of the mountain and she did it. But then on the way back down, she fell and hurt herself. And Stephen came to find her in the truck and rescue her, which is wonderful. But he clearly also kind of just wanted to drive the truck by himself and ended up having an accident with the both of them that was really bad. And he's, he's 12 years old. Yeah. And they both are. And it's, he's driving this truck. He's 12 years old. It's not like he's like a teenager or a 20 something year old or something. He's, he's like 12 years old and he's driving up the side of the mountain, rescuing Hollis. And then they have a crash. So it's pretty, I mean, it's pretty bad. It is pretty bad. I, I can picture him like being able to see over the hood. Well, so, and the implication all along is that he died in this crash, which is not true. And then the other implication is that because of whatever happened, the family didn't want her anymore. Like, that's pretty strongly implied. But you're also seeing this from inside Hollis's perceptions, right? And that was also an untrue thing. It's very untrue. She left because she felt responsible. Because Stephen and Stephen had gone after her, had gone up the mountain to save her. So she felt ultimately responsible. Um, and so she just like ran away. 
Yeah. And also Stephen and his dad don't get along very well. And she's so unused to being with a family that she thinks that that like the whole conflict there is because of her also. And she doesn't want to ruin this family that she loves. It's really sad. And it's really beautiful. So you have Hollis, who's a very complicated character. She's been in all these foster homes and she's run away from a lot of them. But when she finally found this family of Steven, the old man and Izzy, that's what she calls the two, um, the two grownups, old man and Izzy. She starts to really feel like she belongs. And it's the first time she's felt that way. Um, and they start to really see her as part of the family and start to treat her as part of the family. She has her own room um, in the summer house. And so you have, you have this story of a girl without a home and without a family, finally finding that family and home and then thinking that she's messed it up. So she runs away. She finds a place with Josie who is an amazing artist um, and a very loving, very interesting person and character and realizes that she's going to lose this situation too. And so she turns into a caregiver well, that was an, an interesting point, I thought, because it seems like in leaving the old family, taking care of them by like trying to keep the family intact and not being this force of chaos uh, that she's totally wrong about being. Although the other people in her life, the other foster families keep telling her that she is, uh, what do they call her? Uh, a mountain of trouble. And yeah. She, she repeats that multiple times and she clearly believes it. And, you know, that's that's horrible and sad, but I also think that the emotions and the impact and the story are really scaled to a middle reader. And I find that incredible. Like I've always loved, or I've loved Patricia Riley gifts books um, for a long time, but I don't know if I've ever read this type of book from her, which is very realistic, very um, just filled with depth, filled with thoughtfulness and just really the writing is gorgeous. I think Lily's Crossing is that way too. Um, that one was a 1998 Newbery Honor, so I'm sure we'll cover that at some point. But that ha- it has a similar tone to me. Oh, it does. Mm-hmm. Just that like deep emotion, like deep introspection, and like very realistic. Because um, she's known, or I knew her as a like a comedy um, early reader writer. So there's a series of her books that. Um, there are a ton of them, and it's the Polk Street series about, like, a classroom of kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, I have not read a ton of them, but I know that she's very well known for them. That's what I well, – that's one of the things I used to read – I used to read a lot of when I was just starting to read. And so that artwork and those little stories, because they're brief stories, um, they're just – they're just something that I've always remembered and always really been into. Originally they were illustrated by a woman, by someone named Blanche Sims and that, that those covers and those figures of kids are something that has stuck with me since I was probably in first, second grade. Um, so that's how I knew Patricia Riley Giff. I knew her as a, a comedic writer, a writer of, you know, these little classroom dramas and comedies and so this is the first one I've read of what I would consider maybe more serious or a more serious book. And um, I, like you said, with Lily's Crossing, I know she has several of them. So I'm really excited to read Lily's Crossing now. Yeah. And actually, uh, she put one out in 2018 called Genevieve's War, which is really good. Well, so I think that's interesting, too, because she, um, from what I read about her, she has three kids. 
she spent like 20 years teaching. And so I think that in, in some ways, if you have the right temperament, it must be really easy to write comedic books about that. But you also see a lot of really sad stuff when you teach little kids, you know? And so to write these particular books, this one and Lily's Crossing, that are so just like able to put you into the inner life of a kid who really needs some help is is really impressive writing. You're not looking at it from a grown-up's perspective. Like you are in that kid's perspective and it's perfectly done. Well, and the layering that goes into that, right? Because it, if you're a kid, you understand that this is sad and you understand that... Hollis doesn't have anybody and you understand that Hollis is worried and she's trying to take care of people. But as an adult, you see a parentified child, you see a child who's had to grow up before she's, she should have, and she's learned that she needs to take care of everything and anything, including herself. Um, and so you just see the amount of stress that you, that is on this little, like little kid. Right. Um, yeah, even and you when she see, finds family that she wants to keep, she has to take care of them. Like automatically that's the case. Yeah, without and that's that's one of the signs of like a parentified child is they just take care of people. They don't they don't like and they can do that by making decisions without allowing the other people to have input. Um and so that's exactly what she does when she takes off from the from Stephen and his family. She decides that it's better that she goes away without ever talking to them or seeing their perspectives. And it's so sad because you can, again, with the layers, like you can see so much how much they want her. Like you can see from an adult perspective when you're reading it that I don't know. If you were a kid reading this, you would have no idea, right? But as an adult reading it, you can see what's happening in the background, and it, it makes it even more sad. It does. I mean, they, Izzy and the old man had wanted more than one kid, um, and that wasn't in the cards for them. And so when Hollis came along, they started to really feel like they had completed their family, yeah. And you see that, you see that. And from an adult perspective, you're like, you know that the adults have, the, you know that these grown up characters have thought a lot about this and they prepared for it and they are ready. And you can see the love they have for Hollis. Um, and it's not just about making her feel better or making her, you know, doing something to make her feel better or to make her um, feel comfortable. It's, I think it's something that very, it's very well done in this book that, Hollis takes it as them being polite and we know as the reader, particularly adult readers, we know how much, how wanted and loved she is. Which makes it all the more wrenching that she runs away from them to self, yeah. to protect them essentially. Yeah. You know, there's, there's some funny moments in here, you know, that's another thing that I think is really interesting is that Josie is suffering from dementia. It's getting worse and worse. And there's moments of levity with that. And that's, I think that's really the way that it is, you know, from personal experience, that is the way it is. You know, you, you deal, you cope with sometimes poking fun at or finding the the funny lining in, in a, a sad situation. And so Josie has got a really good sense of humor and she's got a really sharp mind, even if she doesn't always remember all the details. And so there's, if this is not a doom and gloom book, it actually is quite engaging and entertaining. It is. Um, it's it's weird because it is a sad book, but it's not a bummer of a book, and it is and it's joyful. Mm-hmm. 
you know, yeah. because underneath everything is the fact that she finds people that she loves enough to want to protect and that love her enough to be persistent and try to take care of her. So, and um, I want to talk a minute about the way that art is written about in this book. So first of all, Josie makes these people out of dr- driftwood, right? Yep. And so, of course, that made me think of our interview with Ashley Bryan and him talking about making his personages from stuff that he found, finds on the beach. And I just thought this was a delightful way of expanding that um, into someone else's perspective of making people, making puppets, making figures out of found objects. Um, it's just a funny coincidence that we had two different encounters with this close together, but I think it's, it's, it's a happy accident. So, so Hollis has this complete artistic vocation already at the age of 12. Like she makes drawings out of everything, everything she sees, she compares to art and how she would draw it. Um, but in a completely unpretentious way, um, I feel like a lot of times when you see older characters making like folk art in books, the kids are at first, at least, very uh, judgmental and dismissive, right? So mm-hmm. it's really nice to see a kid character appreciating the art of an older person. And understanding it's special. That's really, yeah, it's a little out of the ordinary and not just writing her off as wacky. Yes, be like, oh, that crazy old lady, or like, I guess she does that, but it's harmless. But no, she like she takes the time to really appreciate what this woman is doing, which is nice. And, and so by the time by the time Josie starts making a wooden figure of Hollis, Hollis knows how important that is and feels extremely honored, and it just makes her feel loved, which is it's just beautiful. Well, and it's very reflective of what she does, right? Because all the drawings that she does that are the little vignettes in the book are reflections mostly of this family that she learned to love, like drawings of them and of their home and moments that they had together. And it it becomes clear through that how much she loves them. And so then to have Josie, who she finds a home with, at least temporarily, like the fact that she's making art of Hollis is proof to Hollis whether she says it or not, that she is loved. Yeah. Yeah. So that's always nice. Yeah. It's nice. I guess what I'm saying is it's nice to find your own values like reflected back to you. Well, and that reminds me of like when I was a kid, I was always really obsessed with adults that were weird because. (laughs) How is that different from now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, for me, it was a matter of like, oh, they survived being my age. Mm. You know, like they, they got through this stuff. They got through being told you were an odd or that you were weird and that you maybe were too intense or you thought weird things, did weird things, you know? So anytime I would see an adult or talk to an adult that did something interesting for a living or was an artist or just was like really comfortable and like a real person around kids, it always like gave me a big boost. Cause I was like, Oh, they survived and they actually are like doing good. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> yeah. So I always, th- I, I thought that was a, an interesting parallel of having um, Hollis as a young artist being paired with Josie, a very experienced older artist and, and Hollis seeing the links between them in that way. Yeah. I also really enjoyed this very secondary character of Beatrice, who was um, Josie's cousin. And they're about the same age. They're both older. But when she comes over and sees Hollis's artwork, she doesn't – it's not like there's one special adult who gets Hollis, right? And that's like this magical character. Like 
Beatrice comes over and she's like, oh my God. Like she sees the drawings and she's like, I was an art teacher for 40 years or however long it was. And she was just like, I can't believe this. I can't believe you never were in my class. I can't. Oh, well, at least I found, you know, we found you now. And Hollis is so touched that she's like trying not to cry. It's weird because I know this is a story about an essentially neglected child, but it's all about the connections that they're making. And she is so like instantly appreciated in a lot of ways. Like she's a valuable person. You don't have to like dig for it. It's there. And, you know, I, I think that's, yeah, I think that that might be, might be a little bit of where the, maybe a fantasy element comes in because I think it's, it's from what I've read and what I know, Um, I think it's rare for a foster foster kid to find a great situation, like unmasked for them to find a great situation and to be kind of encouraged in their passions. It's not, not that it doesn't happen, but I think it's just so plain that so many people love Hollis right off the bat. And, um, I think that that's not always, that's not always the case, unfortunately, no, you're right. But I think, I don't know, I felt like part of the point was that to anybody who is even remotely willing to look, but I think as someone who taught kids for so long, she might have been fed up with the attitude that kids are automatically not worthless, but like unwilling to respond to people's care. Like it's not it's not worth it for the adults ever to just stop caring and sort of be perfunctory about it. Like if you're willing to look, you're going to get results. I think was kind of the point. So I guess we're going to spoil the ending. (laughs) Yes. So the person watching them in the woods, um, there was someone and they were bringing um, her supplies and fixing things on the periphery. And they could Um, get away with it because Josie was kind of senile and wouldn't like, didn't tell anybody that she was finding things. Um, it was actually Stephen, who is not a ghost, real live Stephen, <laughs> <laughs> and he was taking care of Hollis. He, they had heard, the family had heard that Hollis had gone missing, and Stephen had a hunch that she had gone to their summer cabin, and with the same uh, stellar judgment that he used when driving the truck up the mountain, decided that he knew better than the grown-ups as to who should uh, know that she was there. But in this case, he didn't harm himself or anyone else, so that was. Yeah, that's true. He was correct in this case, and uh, it was okay. But, um, yeah, so this leads to them, of, of course, of Hollis going back to the family. There's reconciliation. She rejoins the, the family that she um, is really already a part of. And Josie goes to live with her cousin. And then the last picture is her with Old Man and Izzy and Steven, and then the new baby, Christina, which, I'm sorry, just about killed me. Yeah, yeah. It did me too. I mean, like, it was, I mean, maybe it's trite, you know, to throw in another little, like a little baby. But at the same time, I don't, I I just think it works in this. Like, well, it proves there's not a lot, there's not a lot of time spent on it. And it just, it just makes sense. And it's just like a new beginning. It's a big symbol of a new beginning for Hollis and for the family. And they have two new kids at once. It also proves that Hollis is not a placeholder, right? Because earlier in the book, they had talked about just very, very briefly, a moment where they showed a tiny little tombstone in the graveyard that they were visiting and said, it never really happened for us after this. Um, So they clearly had a a miscarriage or, or they lost a baby. 
And so you could you could think that Hollis was just like, okay, well, we need one more, so let's fill in. But instead, like she has this baby sister. And during the earlier parts of the book, they talk about the first picture, which is when she's wishing for a family. It's supposed to be, you know, a picture a word that starts with W, and it's a picture of a family that she took out of a magazine when she was six because she used it to wish um, for the family that she could have. And she talks about this being better because she never wished for a baby sister, but now she has it. Yeah. It's, it's heavy, but it's also beautiful. It's, it's, yeah, this is, this book is just really incredible. And, um, I, I know I've been gushing about it now for like over half an hour, but sometimes you just got to gush. Agreed. Totally <laughs> agreed. And I really love even like the little details, uh, like her name, Hollis Woods, right? She says that when she was a baby, she was abandoned on a street corner um, in New York. And she thinks that that's the name of where she was left. And she thinks it was all one word, but they don't really go into it. But I looked and that is a neighborhood in Queens, uh, Holliswood, uh, which is where Run DMC is from, incidentally. They have Christmas in Hollis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is yeah. where it's from. Yeah. So I just thought that was cool. Little, All the little details are just really well done. They are. Um, Honestly, I feel like we have a better debate when one of us didn't like the book or both of us didn't like the book because we can sit and pick it apart. But this book was just so good. Yeah, it is. And it's not like it's good to adults and not great for kids. Like I would recommend it to anybody. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a very quick read, but it's so impactful. And um, it just doesn't shy away from from big emotional things. And I think that so many – um, so many kids respond so well to that because it's just, I mean, it's the honesty. They respond so well to that. And even even if they're not in the situation that's similar to um, Hollis's situation, I feel like there's a lot of emotional ground covered here that so many kids will res- like relate to. And I related to as a grown-up. So. I totally agree. And, you know, honestly, I, I've always said that I think the best way to build empathy in anybody, grown-up or kid, is to read the kind of books that really put you in other people's shoes. And I think this is one of the books that would excel at that. Yeah, definitely. Marcy, do you have um, read-alikes? I do. Um, mostly one, although it's a series. Um, cause it would be hard. Sometimes we do read betters, but this book is so good that I, it's a little hard to improve on it. Um, I think that Cynthia Voigt's homecoming series is probably the best read alike I have for this because Dicey song in particular is about, well, in that case, it's an older sister with a family of kids, but they are having that sort of foster system slash neglect situation where they feel like they have to take care of themselves and then they do find a loving home. Um, it's not the exact same situation, but it has that same like sad but joyful tone to it to me. And I think that um, I know that we've covered uh, we we covered a solitary blue, which is oh yeah. <laughs> which, I was like crane on the ocean. <laughs> we covered sad, a solitary sad blue and a bird. Like I was just like, what was that? Sad kid and a bird. We and I know that we covered that less than favorably but it is it's still part of a series that I really enjoy and I do enjoy reading that book it's just that it had a lot of flaws but Dicey Song is spectacular and um I'm a completionist and so I have to read the whole series every time and A Solitary Blue is part of that so that's what I have for read-alikes so I have two read-alikes and one of them I haven't read in a while um I don't know 
if there's problematic content, because like I said, I haven't read it in a while, but when I was reading this book, I kept thinking of The Pinballs by Betsy Byers. Yeah, so it's about um, it's about foster kids, and it's about um, them coming to some understandings, and it's also got some tragedy and some comedy. I do love Betsy Byers. Yeah, I do too. Another uh, The other book that I have as a read-alike is Ordinary Hazards by Nikki Grimes. It was published in 2019. It's uh, Nikki Grimes' memoir about being a foster kid and about dealing with her family growing up. Um, it was a Cybert honor and a Prince honor book. Um, and it's beautiful and devastating. And um, I mean, with Nikki Grimes, you're always going to get lyrical. Um, so I, I, this book reminded me of that as well. We do not have an official drink or snack for this episode. No, I'm not sure when this episode is going to air in in order of our other ones. But um, for us, this is happening right at the beginning of the COVID-19 situation. And we are recording uh, separately from each other. I have created a cocktail out of uh, ginger ale and maraschino original by Luxardo. (laughs) Um, And it's, you know, ginger ale and Italian cherry liquor. And it's, you know, it's good. It tastes like a Capri Sun. Um, so I'm, you know, it's fine. And so that's going to be my tactic We're as we're recording separately. I'm just going to put different things in ginger ale. Yeah, you're going to have to forgive us because we can only operate with the supplies we have on hand. <laughs> we call them quarantinis. Uh, but I think really what's happening here is the universe is saving us from Jenny's imp- like initial uh, goal, which why don't you tell them about that? Okay, so we're making a promise, which is however many seasons we record while we're separately recording, for each season, we're going to have a dedicated um, drink and snack episode. So for this would be season five. At the end of season five, we'll slip in a um, an episode where we're together and we're doing all the themed drinks for all the books and snacks. So in honor of Hollis Woods and in honor of Hollis and Josie, I will be eating a chocolate donut dipped in tomato soup during that episode. Oh, I, I don't even have any words. I have no words. I maybe this is the universe saving me from having to see that and gag. I don't. Ugh. ugh. Well, you will eventually see it. Maybe. Or you might have to go in the other room if it's going to be really because we don't. You know, I don't want to make you gag. I just when I read that they eat some very weird things well, to me. They're poor. They're very poor. But to me, it's like just eat the soup. And then the donut, like, I don't understand putting a chocolate donut in a soup. I understand being low income and eating what you, what you have and food is food. I get that. I'm not necessarily making a statement on that, but just like in, in like in the book, it's like this cat, like I knew you were going to talk about that with the neighbor who just ate like a quart of cottage cheese, just like sitting there. I don't understand the mixtures or quantities in some of these books. And um, so I'm going to stunt eat a chocolate donut dipped in chocolate soup. I'm not chocolate. I'm going to stunt eat a chocolate donut dipped in tomato soup. That is my promise to you, dear listener. So gross. It sounds like a threat. It's not a promise. That's a threat. (laughs) What if I barf? Please don't. On whatever platform you're listening to us, please rate and review us, especially iTunes and Facebook. It helps other people find the podcast and helps keep us going. This episode was about 
Pictures of Hollis Woods by Patricia Riley Giff. Next episode, we'll be discussing Surviving the Applewhites by Stephanie Tolan. Thanks for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.